Just wait a second for things to calm down. Uh, Lord willing, today is our last lesson on the foundations of the Christian faith as I have presented it. What I've presented to you, it doesn't have to be the thus says the Lord as far as, oh, these are the doctrines that are the foundation of the Christian faith, but these are the doctrines that I thought would be important for us to remember and to consider as we think about what is foundation for the Christian faith. And because I believe the Bible teaches what's been known as Reformed theology and as covenantal theology, then those things were part of what um, I've been teaching you as foundational, essential essentials of the Christian faith. And what we have seen is God's plan of salvation takes a person from being dead in his or her sins and brings him or her to glory. That, that's the entire plan of salvation there, from eternity past to eternity future. And today we arrive, Lord willing, at this destiny of the child of God that is glorification. We started a little bit two years ago. Two years ago, that's what it feels like. Two weeks ago, and uh, we should finish today the final divine act on behalf of the believer. And here we should conclude our series on the theological foundations. We've been considering soteriology for a little while, the doctrine of salvation, and we've been looking at the order of salvation, the logical order of salvation, not a time order of salvation. This is how logically things can be organized according to the scriptures. A lot of these things are happening at the same time. And these are the things that we've looked so far. Ten things, that the last one being glorification. We also seen that some of these things can be considered monergistic. That is, God alone is doing it. And some of these things can be considered synergistic. That is, we are working alongside with God in the, uh, in the accomplishment of that thing. Now, from, uh, from one perspective, in one sense, we can say that everything in salvation from beginning to end, from effectual calling to glorification is monogistic. It's all God's work. But as far as our, from our perspective, there's some items that God does completely alone and some items that God does alongside with us. Having said that, so it's the quiz time. Which ones of these... 10 that are on the screen are monergistic, and which ones are synergistic. So if you want to take a stab, raise your hand, and you can pick any one, and uh, tell me if it's monergistic or synergistic. Brandon, pick one. Um, number one is monergistic. If calling is monergistic, that's correct. Anybody else? Lois, pick uh, num- number two. Monergistic, all right, that's correct. What else? Anybody else? Rick? Seven. Seven, okay. Uh, uh, now you have to pick uh, monergistic or synergistic? Okay, all right, yes, that's correct. Yeah, I can see the numbers. I can pick the numbers, so just... Yeah. What else? So one, two, and seven are out of the picture, and they are monogist, uh, they're monogistic. Nine. nine. Who said nine? Synergistic. 
Katie, Katie, nine. Synergistic, yes, good job. We are, God is working us, and we are working with Him to persevere to the end. What else? Kim? Five is monergistic. Five is monergistic, that's correct, justification. And remember, the justification happens completely outside of us. Nothing is happening to us when we are justified. God is in the course of heaven declaring something about us. What else? I heard another voice, but I didn't see a hand. Hand, then voice. <laughs> all right. Three. Three. All right, Heather. Synergistic. That's correct. Repentance unto life is a work of God in which we turn away from sin and turn to, to God through Jesus Christ. Nick. What she said. What she said. All right. All right. What else? Isaiah 8. All right. Synergistic, that's correct. So, sanctification is a work of God's free grace in which we die more and more into sin and live more and more into righteousness. So you can see there in daily life is us and God working together. What else? Four is... Who is believing? So that's why it's synergistic, right? It's a gift of God in which we believe... In there, so yes, as I said, you, you actually, if you step back far enough theologically, everything is going to be monogistic, right? Because it's all by God's grace. But as we, th- as we think about how it works in daily life for us, you know, we are believing is a gift of God that we believe. So we see there, God and us working together. There, what else? So which ones do we have left? We have six, and we have ten left. Let's see if it's somebody else, Isaiah. Six and ten. So let's see somebody. Yes, Bethany. Ten. That's correct. There's only we do nothing there. And then Jonas. I will say six is synergistic. Six is synergistic. Nah, sorry. <laughs> so six is monogistic. God declares us to be completely sanctified. That's what definitive sanctification is. Great job, though, everybody. Um, it warmed my heart. At first, it was, uh, my heart sank, but then it came back from the ashes like the phoenix uh, with all these answers. So, thank you. As we began, so we began last week looking at glorification, but barely, and we had not two weeks ago, and we had to rush a little bit. So, we're going to review the things that we saw two weeks ago and then try to finish the rest tonight, we, this morning. We saw that uh, we can think of glorification in, in three tenses. Or salvation itself in three tenses. We, the Bible speaks about the past tense of salvation. Uh, that the Christian has been saved from the guilt and the penalty of sin. And we, we thought about Ephesians 2.8 where it says, For by grace you what have been saved. So past tense uh, uh, there. But we, uh, but we also can think of salvation in the present tense. The Christian is being saved from the power of sin. Right? Uh, in 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. And then we can think of salvation in the future tense. The Christian will be completely saved someday from the very presence of sin. So we have the guilty of sin, the power of sin, the presence of sin, the different three tenses of, 
of salvation. Uh, Paul says in Romans 5, verses 9 and 10, Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall, shall be saved by His life. So you have these uh, future tenses of salvation. And in, so when we break down a theological book, these different tenses of salvation are called different things. So you have justification in one point, you have sanctification in the other, and then glorification as this last one. And that's what we come to at this point. Any questions so far? All right, so let's talk about the nature of justification, of, of glorification, a description, what it means to be glorified. And the first thing we need to understand is that glorification encompasses the whole person, his body and soul. It's not one or the other, it's both. Body and soul are involved in glorification. Now, it is true, as our Shorter Catechism, question 37 says, that the souls of believers at their death are made perfect and do immediately pass into glory. That's true. That's what happens. The moment a believer dies, that the, his or her soul is made perfect and passes into glory. But it is also true that the state of believers in heaven is a more blessed state than the ones of the believers who are alive. So it's true that our soul is, is glorified or is rid from sin as immediately upon death. It's also true that the state of the people in heaven now is a better place than for believers on earth now. We see that in Philippians where Paul says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, but, it, I live on, but if I live on this flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor, yet what I shall choose I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. So Paul describes life of the soul in heaven as far better than the life of the Christian right now here on earth. And we're okay with that. This is something that we understand is something that is common in our in, in Christian theology. But with all this being said, have, and this is the part we don't usually think about, heaven now is not the best and most glorious state. Heaven now is not where we are actually looking forward to. Uh, the period between the death of the believers and the resurrection of, at the return of, Christ, of Jesus Christ is called the intermediate state. And the intermediate state is just that. The intermediate is we're, we're trying to get somewhere else beyond that. And Paul speaks of this period as being desirable only because it is temporary. The heaven now is only desirable because it's going to change. It's temporary. He says that in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. So it talks about the disembodied state of a human as a naked state, an incomplete state state, not, not really what we're made for. And then he says, for we who are in this tent grown, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, it's not that we want to ultimately just be in heaven as souls, but further clothes that, nor, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. 
So heaven now is better than here, but the res future resurrection is better than heaven. Any, any questions on that? Now the saints in heaven, we, we, we have a passage, a particular passage in Revelation 6, where the saints in heaven have a desire for something more than their souls being in heaven with God. They, they, they want something more. It's great to be in heaven with God, but there's something more that the souls want. In Revelation 6, they ask this question, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge the event and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And Jesus answers them with the idea of be patient. It's coming. Just be patient. So there's something that the souls in heaven are desiring that goes beyond that state that they are in heaven. So if all this being true, then Christians are not ultimately looking for death. Death is not the ultimate experience for which a Christian should long. We're not longing to die and be with the Lord. That's not our ultimate desire. Our blessed hope is the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, at whose coming those who have died in the faith and those who are alive at the time of His coming will be changed. That is our ultimate hope. We are looking through death to the resurrection. Does that make sense? We're not hoping to die. We're hoping to be resurrected. That's our ultimate hope. Hope. In life, Paul makes that clear in Titus 2, 11 through 13. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Doing what? Looking. Looking for. Now, looking for is not like searching it, well, where is it? Is that under this book? Is that under the pew? No. It's expecting. Looking forward. No. no. Desiring that to come. Looking for the, the, the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's, that's our, our hope. Paul teaches that as well in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 54. It says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised in incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is all about being victory. That is our hope, that death is all about in, his, in, in, in victory. Are we okay so far? Any questions on that? So our, our, our catechism, question 38, teaches that the resurrection believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. That is what we're looking forward. Eternity in heaven, and heaven is a physical place. Does it make sense to you? Heaven is a physical place. It's a, a place where we're going to exist physically because that's what we are. We are body and soul in the presence of God, always mediated by the man, 
Jesus Christ. When it says we shall see him as he is in 1 Corinthians in 1 John 3, it says that we're going to see him as the glorified, resurrected Savior in the flesh. It doesn't mean that we're going to see the glory of the Father. No one can access the Trinity apart from the Son. And that's going to be true for all, all eternity. Any questions before we continue? Renee. No. Correct. So you say heaven is a physical place. Are you referring to after the new earth? After the resurrection. After the resurrection. When Christ comes back, yeah. So here? Yes. Okay. So, the Bible does not use the word heaven, really, to talk about the place where we go now. It's okay to talk about heaven that way, but usually the Bible uses the word heaven to refer to to eternity which is a physical existence. Yes, in this creation, we cannot exist outside of creation, right? We're created beings. So creation is renewed, and create, whatever God created, heaven now is a, is a created place too, right? No, we can't transcend creation. So forever we're living in, as creatures, and we're made to be body and soul, not just souls, or not just bodies. Risa. That's, that's correct. Yes. Correct. Yes. There's not another dimension. There's not another physical dimension that somehow people who died are there. There's a, there's a spiritual dimension there. The, the, the resurrection is what's going to bring the spiritual and physical together. Adam. Correct. Uh, it's, yes, it's called the heavens of heavens, something like that. But it's not necessarily described as a place of the abode of the dead believers either. Linda. What is the name of the abode of the dead? We can call it heaven, that's fine. Uh, it's called several different things, but all, no, the talks refers to Abraham's bosom, the place of the departed, in the Old Testament it's called Sheol. Um, Sometimes Hades is used for that as well, the place of the dead. Um, but it's all the same place. You are in the presence of God. It's, it's not like you are in the less presence of God, but it's not eternity yet. Yeah. Anything else before we continue? All right. So at, at the resurrection, the Christian will enter upon his or her glorified state the goal toward which the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been working since the moment of creation. That's the, the, the goal. Eternity. Since, since the moment of the fall, actually, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been working towards that moment in which we are um, resurrected and glorified at that point. Alright, so a little bit more specific. The meaning of glorification for Christians Part of being glorified is receiving the fullness of adoption by the resurrection of their bodies from the dead. So a big part of glorification is receiving our glorified eternal bodies. We see that in Romans chapter 8, verse 23. 
Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. So the scriptures use the word adoption sometimes referred to our bodies being raised from the dead, and in that sense adopted by God, and, and completely purified and united to our souls. Part of being glorified is becoming fully conformed to the likeness of the Son of God. So when we're glorified, we're going to be just like the resurrected Jesus Christ. We see that in 1 John. It says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And so we shall see Jesus as He is, as the glorified Son of God in the flesh. And this is all happening for the believer at the return of Christ. First uh, Thessalonians tells us that, uh, verses 15 through 17. For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. So this is one of those places that you better not use the King James because the words have changed. And if you have a King James Version, it says that those that are alive will not prevent those who are asleep. And you read the word prevent and you think, oh, they're not going to be forcing them down into the grave. But the word prevent changed its meaning. And it went, it now it used to mean won't go first. So there's a great need for current translations of the Bible. But anyway, um, by no means precede those who are asleep, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So that's, that's happening at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's when we, our bodies are adopted. That's when we are made completely in the likeness of the Son of God. Any questions? Renee? Is there any part of glorification that happens before the return of Christ? No. Um, well... In some ways, our souls are glorified in heaven. There's no sin once we die in Christ. Our souls are, are completely purified. So there's that there. That's correct. Yeah. Any other questions on that? All right, so the same group that's going to be glorified began all the way back by being regenerated by the Spirit. So those that were regenerated are the same ones that are going to be glorified at the end. That's clearly seen in Romans 8.30. Moreover, when it says, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. And you see all these past tenses, the prophetic past tense, in which the speaker is speaking from the perspective of the end, looking back at history, doesn't mean that we have been glorified already, but in the, in the prophetic perspective, it's seen as already done. And if you look at the words whom and these, you see how they are repeated throughout the verse? Whom and these, they are grammatically referring to the same group of people. There's no other possible interpretation grammatically of this verse. Uh, so you, you have the same group that starts in the first whom, ending with the last these. You understand what I'm saying? 
is, is, is a closed system. Nobody's added, nobody's taken out. Grammatically, is, this, is a little train that stays together all the way to the end. Any questions before we continue? The next part, next part I think, is something that we don't think very often, but it's the meaning of the Christian's glorification for creation. Not just for the individual, but for creation in general. All of creation will be renewed as a result of the glorification of the children of God. Everything is going to be renewed. Paul says that in Romans 8, 19-21. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And if you remember, it's in the context of our being adopted in the, our bodies being adopted in the resurrection. The entirety of creation will be also freed from the effects of sin. Remember back in Genesis chapter 3 when God um, spoke to Adam and Eve and the serpent and talked about what would be the consequences of their sin? Do, do, you know, do you remember how creation as a whole bore the brunt of that curse, uh, you know, uh, the whole earth was affected by that, and there's going to be a, deliver, a delivery of that, and that's exactly how Paul portrays here in Romans eight as a, as, a, as, a, as a the whole creation being born again. Now, not in the same sense as a believer is born again, but in the sense of being recreated at the resurrection of the believers. And the Bible refers to this, new, this renewed creation as the new heavens and the new earth where we will dwell forever. In, in 2 Peter 3, verses 10 through 13, it says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved what manner of person ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening to the coming of the day of, the, of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which we righteousness dwells. So this is a description of the coming and the renewal of the Lord Jesus Christ. And at, at this time, when this happened, then in this way, God's land promises to Abraham that have not been fulfilled. Hebrews is very clear on that. It says that Abraham died without receiving the promises. And it's at the coming of Jesus Christ that those promises are going to be finalized. Abraham and his seed, and because the new covenant is greater than the Abrahamic covenant, it's a greater promise where it's not just Palestine, but the children of Abraham will inherit the whole world, as the Beatitudes also say. Get, uh, Jerry. My question is on timing. Is We're good on time. We're going to finish <laughs> just right. <laughs> okay. Is this when creation, when First Thessalonians, all those verses... Uh, come together, are they at the same time 
and is at the beginning of the millennium, the end of the millennium, or as as some Christians think, there's a rapture. So that's my question. Mm-hmm. Timing. Yeah. Yes. And what what do we say? Is that or is that something? We just say it. The thief of the night. You know, during the the I guess my question: If it happens before the millennium, I can understand that. But if if this all comes at the end of the millennium, then we'll kind of know because it's after a thousand years, right? So I a little right. So I think we need to allow for a range, right? Uh, a range when this is happening. Um, eternity is such a long time. Often the events of the last times are, are are bunched together because in in light of eternity they're such just a blip on the radar that they're kind of lumped together, right? I I see all this happening at the coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, go back a few months. I time runs together, but we did a series on eschatology in Sunday school. So you remember, I don't think the Bible teaches uh, the idea of a rapture prior to the tribulation. I think the church will go through some future tribulation prior to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so I, I see the new heavens and the earth happening at the coming of Jesus Christ. What is the difficulty? Everybody's going to raise their hands and say, oh, are you going to have unbelievers on the earth? Yes, that's, that's how I see it. Uh, you're going to have a perfect creation and it's going to have unbelievers and you guys say, oh, but how can that be? Uh, it, it is a difficulty. But there is a precedent. There is a single precedent in the Bible of that happening. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were not immediately cast out of the garden, and earth was not immediately cursed. So you do have, for whatever time it was, as brief or as long as it was, we do have a precedent of sinful people dwelling on a perfect creation. Right? So... Uh, let's not be too quick to throw that idea out. And I understand there are difficulties and so on, but that's how I understand. And another thing you have to keep in mind, Jerry, is that the, when it says it, the, that the Lord's coming as a thief in the night, that expression, thief in the night, is only used to refer to unbelievers. Specifically in First Thessalonians, it says, He will not come as a thief in the night to you who believe, because the believer lives in a life of expectation. Right? It's not necessarily that we know exactly when he comes, but when he comes, it's not going to be surprising to us because we're expecting, we live as if he's coming the next second and so on. Okay? Jonas, we're not going to discuss different millennial systems at this point, though. Jonas. Will there be new people born into eternity? No. I do not believe so. Uh, the, once Christ comes, that's, the, that's it. So, time to have babies now. <laughs> so, just putting that out there. Any, any, any other questions? Alright, so, what's the, how are we going to live in light of this? The product of glorification in the future is encouragement and holiness now. Every time the Bible speaks about things concerning the last days, it says... Because of that, you be encouraged now, and you live obedient lives now. Does that make sense? Any eschatological system that takes your focus from living now is 
not faithful to the scriptures. So that's something to, that's important. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 4.18, Paul says, Therefore comfort one another with these words. He talks, he writes about eschatology, talks about the last things, talks about the coming of Jesus Christ, talks about the resurrection, and he says, I'm writing that to you so that you can comfort one another, so you can encourage one another. He says that again in, in 5.11. Therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you all are doing. So these doctrines are given to encourage the believer not to tear the church apart. They are not supposed to be the subject of fighting, but the subject of encouragement. And as we saw, Paul tells us that because Christ is coming back, right, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to uh, all men, teaching us, what? That denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Now, why? Because we are expecting, looking forward to the blessed hope of the resurrection. So you can see that holiness and encouragement should always be the result of what the Bible teaches concerning for, for the believer concerning the issues of the last time. Any questions? So this surprisingly concludes our series on foundations. And it was just a little longer than I had anticipated, but we came to the end. Uh, this is what's going to happen for the next two weeks. Next week, Nick is going to cover chapter 2 of what is the mission of the church. And then the following week, Isaiah uh, is going to talk about his journey into covenant theology. And thus, that's the plan for the next two weeks. And then following that, we're going to start a series on discipleship. And it's going to be just, discipleship is going to be a big, uh, a big uh, umbrella in talk about the family, relationships, and so on, always with the purpose of discipleship, because ultimately that is the mission of the church, to make disciples, all right? So we'll dismiss with a few minutes left to make up for any other times where we didn't finish on time, so let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you are a good God to us, and thank you that we know that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back for us. We pray that in light of that blessed hope, we will live righteously now, encourage one another, uh, looking forward to the day in which we're going to see him as he is, for we shall be like him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.